We have a lot uh, to cover in this uh, equipping hours. We're going through this series on marriage and family, and this morning we come to the to the pretty difficult topic of divorce and remarriage. And uh, as with every lesson in this series, once again, this is going to be uh, a pretty high altitude overview of these matters. Uh, even as you see by your notes, there's a lot to cover, but even with that, it's it's. Um, fairly high altitude overview, so we can't get way into the weeds of everything that there would be to talk about with regard to these matters in a, in a, in a uh, biblical perspective of it all. But let me open us with prayer, and uh, then we're going to just dive into things. Almighty God, we rejoice in the goodness of who you are, in the beauty of your glory as you have revealed in your word and in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the richness of the life-giving beauty of all of your design in creation. And even though we know, as you have declared, and as we know all too well by experience, that, that the beauty of your design is marred by sin and the corruption and the pollution and the brokenness and the heartache that sin brings, Uh, Yet we rejoice that there is redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you are working uh, through all of your saving purposes in him uh, to bring about what you've ordained in the new heavens and in the new earth and the joy of life for all who would believe on Christ uh, within that hope and within your design. And so even this morning, we pray you'd guide and direct us, lead us and help us as we look to your word and these uh, matters regarding uh, divorce and remarriage within Uh, your purposes. Uh, Lord, please guide us and direct us and that our thinking uh, might be guided by your word and that you'd help us to respond in faith uh, to all that you have. We thank you for your faithfulness in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, as you see by your handout, as I've mentioned, the lesson is going to be pretty dense in the things that we're going to cover this morning, uh, even just by way of introduction. Uh, I think we all understand this, these matters of divorce and remarriage uh, can be very complex, very impacting, and also very emotional. And probably all of us, in one way or another, directly and indirectly, uh, are impacted by matters of divorce and remarriage. And um, let me say a few brief things by way of introduction before we get into all the details of things that we want to look at. Um, first of all, just a reaffirmation, even as we've been championing this throughout this entire series of just recognizing God's creational design for marriage and family was very good and life-giving. At the end of Genesis 1, after God has completed all of his creative work, we hear that statement that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And that is very good in God's design and estimation of all of his purposes, the goodness, the riches, the life-giving nature of creation um, in all that he created was very good. And then we understand also that sin has corrupted God's good design. It's brought destruction and death, and perhaps nowhere is uh, that more evident than in the trouble and the turmoil that sin produces in marriage and families. And much of this, of course, is connected with issues of divorce and remarriage. Uh, But we see this in Genesis 4. Genesis 3 records the fall of mankind into rebellion 
uh, and sin when Adam uh, relinquished his authority and responsibility and, and gave in to sin, and God brought judgment and his curse. And then immediately in Genesis 4, we read of the outworking of that sin as uh, Adam and Eve's son Cain killed their other son Abel. He murdered him in cold blood because of jealousy and hatred. And that just ripples on down throughout uh, not only the pages of Scripture and biblical history, but as we see it unfold, of course, in all of history as well. But we have the hope and the promise and the great reality that where sin abounded, grace abounded in Christ all the more. And it's in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, where we hear these words that now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we see throughout all of Scripture, of these parallel realities of the continual outworking of mankind's sin and rebellion, all the corruption, all the destruction, all the murder, all the death, all the everything that comes from that. But at the same time, in God's grace and mercy and love, the outworking of his purposes to redeem a people for himself through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's aim in creation and in redemption is to bless his people in knowing and walking with him in his holy love. And so, beloved, that is the hope of everyone who would trust Christ, that where sin abounded, his grace in Christ abounded all the more. And very practically, what that means is that perhaps you have experienced uh, either directly or indirectly issues related to divorce and remarriage. And perhaps there have been uh, biblical, Christ-exalting realities connected with that. Perhaps there have also been sin. And perhaps even you have been guilty in times past of sins related to divorce and remarriage. But even if that's the case, please know that God wants all of us always to see our sin for what it is, but even more fully to know his forgiveness, to know his grace, to know his mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. I often think that 1 John 1 verse 9, as is all of Scripture, it's always true. Uh, that passage says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So even as we move through these things, it's inevitable that there may be points that bring a conviction, that bring reminders of past sin, that bring regret, bring remorse, and yet in all of it to ever look to Christ and to all of God's sufficiency in Christ and the hope that all who believe have in him. Now, with having said that, one other thing I want to highlight is uh, one of the resource, well, the only resource um, besides the main book that we're using as we're going through this series that I reference on the back of your notes, uh, this book by Jim Neuheiser, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Critical Questions and Answer. Uh, for many years, Jim was a pastor down in Southern California uh, a number of years ago when John and uh, Maggie Gideon were um, down in Southern California. They were a part of his church, and, and he's now involved in more full-time, complete, um, uh, at both educational and counseling ministry, uh, but very godly, faithful man. And this book is a really helpful resource. It's laid out in a question-answer format, uh, very biblical, very concise, 
I would commend it to you. But I want to read a brief uh, portion of a review of that book because he kind of, the guy who reviews it sort of summarizes it and it gives a sense of the focus of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so it's a little bit longer of a quote. This, you can find this on Amazon. It's a review from Tim Challies, and some of you may know that name. He's a very faithful, uh, biblically saturated blogger, and he's written a few books as well. But here's his brief review of uh, Jim Neuheiser's book, and I just want to highlight this. He says this, quote, among Christians, there are essentially two positions on divorce and remarriage. The majority view is that the Bible allows for divorce and remarriage under a limited set of circumstances. The minority or permanence view insists that a Christian may never initiate divorce and may never remarry so long as their spouse is alive. He goes on to say, at their best, both views protect the sanctity of marriage by guarding against easy divorce, and both views protect innocent parties who may be suffering at the hands of an abusive or otherwise ungodly spouse. He says that Neuheiser takes and defends the majority view, and which is, I'll say later on, is the view that I also hold. Uh, Neuheiser takes and defends the majority view, but he first insists that divorce is never desirable, and at least among Christians, never inevitable. Says Neuheiser, and now Challies quotes Neuheiser, he says, while we should labor to understand what the Bible says about whether or when a marriage may end in divorce and whether or when a divorced person may remarry, it is most important to strive to learn how the gospel can enable shattered relationships to heal, end quote. Now, I share all of that because all that we're going to look at this morning reflects this perspective, that divorce in some instances may be allowable, but it is never inevitable. And the thrust and the emphasis that we see in Scripture is of the power of the gospel, as Neuheiser says, to enable shattered relationships to heal. So I share that because I want to just sort of have that hovering over all that we're going to look at this morning uh, concerning these matters. And so what I want to do as we move through this is first look at divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament, then we will look at it in the New Testament. And as I go through this, I'm really drawing very, very heavily from uh, the book by Kostenberger and Jones that we're using as the framework of what we're going through. And then I want to close with some concluding principles uh, that you'll see there on the back of your handout. We'll try to touch on those before we're done this morning. Uh, so that's the plan, and that's where we're going. And I, and I might just ask any, any questions or thoughts at the very outset of this as we get into these matters. And the room is silent. Okay. I understand, and, and, and no doubt there's going to be a lot of uh, thoughts and questions provoked as we go through. We'll try to address what we can, um, but again, this is a, a very high-altitude matter. So let's first of all look at divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. And uh, I want to begin by asking for a few volunteers to read uh, a few different passages. First of all, would somebody be willing to read, when I call on you, somebody be willing to read Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28? Don't be bashful, just uh, volunteer. Lori, you've got that. Thank you. 
And then somebody else to read chapter 2, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Tom, I got you on that one. And then somebody else to read Deuteronomy 24, Terry, uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. So when we get to those passages in a few moments, I'll call on you and have, have you read them. So first of all, uh, Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Laura, you want to? That's okay. It's at the front of the Bible, sweetie. So, yes. She knew that. I was just joking. Excellent. And then, uh, Tom, if you want to read chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Okay, thank you. So we highlight these truths again because they set the foundation, the permanent, unchanging foundation for God's good, wise design for marriage, and thus the sanctity of marriage. Now, parts of Genesis 1, 27 and 28, as well as Genesis 2, 24, as we're going to see, are repeated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, a passage that we'll eventually get to. Um, and then Genesis uh, 2.24 is repeated by Paul both in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well as in Ephesians 5 verse 31. And Jesus in his speaking about these matters also adds the emphatic application of Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. He adds this over in Matthew 19. It's echoed in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10. When he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Matthew 19, verse 6. And the point that I want to emphasize now is that uh, everything that Jesus has to say and that ultimately God through Paul has to say about marriage, as we'll eventually get to, is grounded in these foundational truths that are revealed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In other words, the lifelong one flesh union of one man and one woman in marriage is God's unchanging design and will. And sadly, in our godless and rebellious world, marriage is often treated as simply a human, uh, humanly designed uh, ordinance, a humanly designed institution, and therefore it's often now just treated kind of like the way we treat automobiles. You know, if you have a car and it quits working or have a problem, our transmission went out in our car last summer, and well, what do you do? You get rid of the car, and you just get a new one. Sadly, that's the way marriage is often approached. If it doesn't work out for any reason, you just kind of get rid of it and get a new one. And this is, and we'll talk about this more later too, uh, the tragedy of so-called no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce refers to uh, the tragic idea that no, so anybody can get divorced. No one has to prove someone did something wrong to cause the divorce. You can get a divorce even if the other person doesn't want one. And I'm quoting there from a California government website regarding no-fault divorce. 
Well, that's a tragedy because that's completely contrary to God's good and wise design. And so those passages and those truths are absolutely foundational in regarding the sanctity of marriage and the goodness of marriage in God's design. Well, then that brings us to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. In uh, the Old Covenant, as God is preparing his people to enter into the Promised Land, uh, we hear these words of instruction. So, Terry, if you want to read that. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, and took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay. Uh, this text, um, which is going to inform Jesus' debates with the Pharisees, as we will see in Matthew 19, um, with, his, with the debate with the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage, uh, it's important to understand that this passage should not be seen as a divine endorsement of divorce, but rather as divine instructions given to mitigate and to regulate existing practices against or, or amid God's people. So in other words, it's not an endorsement, but rather more of an allowance uh, regarding divorce and uh, again, to mitigate and to regulate. Now, the key phrase within uh, this statement uh, that has provoked much debate and even among uh, rabbis back in the early, uh, the early days, even before the church, before the time of Christ, uh, more in the old covenant times, the key phrase that provoked a lot of debate is there in verse 1 where it says, he has found some indecency in her. Uh, that's the way it is translated in the New American Standard, the, new, the NIV as well. Uh, the New King James Version says uncleanness. But that little phrase has provoked a lot of debate. So in other words, it, it centers around, well, what then can uh, legitimately allow somebody to divorce their wife? What is this some indecency? And in rabbinical times before the time of Jesus, and that then encompassed the time of Jesus, uh, there were two primary schools of thought, and that's what I've identified there on your bulletin. Uh, there was the conservative school of Shammai, and that school of thought interpreted the phrase very conservatively and saw it as referring to immodest behavior or sexual immorality, either before or after marriage. And so it saw that phrase in that term, referring to immodest behavior or sexual immorality. But then the more moderate, um, permissive school of Hillel uh, argued that divorce was allowed in any instance where a wife did something that was displeasing to her husband. Like she made a meal that he didn't like, he could divorce her. And this more permissive school of thought seems to be 
uh, what held sway with Jesus's contemporaries in Matthew 19, as we'll eventually get there, that they were operating from that vantage point of a more uh, moderate and permissive school of thought. Now, a point that I want to emphasize now with this is that whatever the phrase means, it was not intended to address the issue of divorce in the case of adultery because in the Old Covenant, how was adultery punished? What's that? Yeah, by death, exactly. Leviticus 20, verse 10, as well as Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 tells us. So adultery in the Old Covenant was punished by death. And so the phrase doesn't refer to that. It refers to some other aspect of sexual immorality. But the point that we can certainly see is that God takes marriage fidelity and purity, sexual purity, very, very seriously. And so he's not in any way endorsing divorce, but rather allowing for it, trying to mitigate uh, and regulate existing practices. Now, in the Old Testament, as you see there, letter C on your notes, there's a number of other references to divorce and remarriage. We're not going to take time to go through all of those. I would commend them to you to look at on your own. But all of these passages reveal divorce in a negative light. They reveal it in a negative light, and they reveal also a continued affirmation of God's creational design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, and thus uh, God's opposition to divorce because it undermines that creational design. Uh, but all of these references that I mention are not uh, super extensive. They're, they're somewhat brief, but they nonetheless, nonetheless see divorce in a negative light and see it as undermining uh, God's creational design. Now, all of that sets the, the framework then for how this topic comes up in the New Testament. First with Jesus as we see it, and we'll hear it in the Gospels, and then with Paul, uh, particularly in 1 Corinthians. But before we move into to looking at divorce and remarriage in the New Testament, any, any thoughts or questions? I can either uh, try to answer or plead ignorance to. Okay. Well, let's look at divorce and remarriage in the New Testament. And let me assign a few passages again. First of all, if somebody would read Matthew 5, uh, verses 31 and 32. Okay, Matt, thank you. And then somebody else uh, to read Ma uh, Matthew 19, verses 1 to 9. A little bit longer passage. Cliff, okay, you got that. And then if somebody else would read Luke 16, 18. I'll take that. Uh, Wilson, got you back there. And Paul, we'll probably get you on another one, okay? So uh, when I come to those, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to read. Now, uh, just as we get into this, let me say this. It's interesting that given our modern context and the, in, the uh, frequency and the prevalency of what I refer to and what we understand as no-fault divorce, it might seem surprising to observe that issues of divorce and remarriage, they really don't dominate the New Testament. In fact, everything that the New Testament says about divorce and remarriage is limited to the passages that we're going to look at from Jesus uh, as well as from Paul. But keep in mind that everything that we're going to see here is tethered. It is referenced back to God's creational ideal in Genesis 1 and 2. And one implication, perhaps, of this relative um, lack of airtime, we might call it, uh, to issues of divorce and remarriage, 
One implication is that both Christians and churches as a whole should exercise great humility, wisdom, and care in every specific situation that is being dealt with regarding divorce and remarriage. Uh, that is one implication of the fact that there's just not a, an extensive amount of, of emphasis or teaching given to this. It's not insignificant, but it's not massively extensive in, in comparison to a lot of other matters that are. So having said that, let's, uh, let's move into Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. And first of all, uh, we'll look at Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. So um, I forget who was going to read that. Matt, yes, read that. Okay, now this text is found within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in this whole sermon, he's declaring uh, the necessity and the nature of a person having heart righteousness in God's kingdom, in contrast to mere external righteousness that the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, were given to. So he's talking about what the nature and the necessity of this heart righteousness is all about. And in so doing, with what he says here in verses 30, 31 and 32 in chapter 5, he's correcting the prevalent wrong application and understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And thus, he's upholding God's creation design in Genesis 1 and 2. And so Jesus here is emphasizing that any divorce and remarriage for reasons other than sexual immorality, there's an exception that he mentions there, any divorce for reasons other than that is ultimately a committing of adultery, a committing of adultery. Now, uh, there's a somewhat parallel passage in Luke 16, verse 18, and I think, Wilson, you have that, right? You want to read that? Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay. Now, that statement by Jesus in Luke 18, uh, or I'm sorry, Luke 16, it echoes what he said in Matthew 5, uh, 31 and 32, with the exception that he includes no exception. Uh, if you will, with what he says in Luke 18. Now, it's interesting, or I'm sorry, in Luke 16, it's interesting the passage in Luke 16 is spoken by Jesus in a different context and time than Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to interact with that text more in discussing the exception clause when we get to that in just a little bit, but just want to put those words of Jesus in Luke 16 out in front of you now. Well, then we also have what transpires in Matthew 19, uh, verses 1 to 9. And again, the parallel passage for this is in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Uh, but we'll look at what, uh, how it unfolds in Matthew 19. So, uh, Cliff, you're reading that, right? If you'd read verses 1 to 9. Now, when Jesus had finished these things, he went up away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning 
made them male and female, and said, Therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Okay. Now, as I meant, thank you, Cliff. As I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees who challenged Jesus here in Matthew 19 likely held to the more moderate, permissive school of Hillel in both their understanding and application of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they presumably and wrongly thought that God's stipulations in Deuteronomy 24 superseded or replaced his original creational design of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And so what they're doing in Matthew 19 is attempting to test Jesus, to try to catch him in a contradiction. And so they ask in verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And their question is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, which says, because he finds something indecent about her. And so they're trying to trap Jesus by making him choose between the permissive school of Hillel and the more conservative school of Shammai. But Jesus, of course, does not fall for their trap. His answer goes all the way back and transcends what they're asking, in essence. To, it goes back to God's design at creation, affirming that God's intent for marriage has always been that it would be a lifelong union of one man and one woman, and that that has not changed. And so Jesus only permitted divorce, and that's ultimately what's being expressed in Deuteronomy 24. It's allowing, it's permitting divorce in the case of sexual immorality. That's what Jesus affirms in Matthew 19. But while the Pharisees within first century Judaism, they required it. And so you see how Jesus is not falling for the bait. He's not falling for their trap. And so he avoids what ultimately was a legalistic squabble between these two rabbinical schools of thought, and he goes to the very heart of the matter. And in so doing, he rebukes and he corrects the Pharisees by quoting from Genesis 1, verse 27. That's what he quotes in Matthew, 9, or Matthew 19, verse 4. And then he also quotes Genesis 2, 24 in Matthew 19, verse 5. And then, as I said earlier, he applies these creational truths in verse 6 when he says, What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. Which, by the way, if you're ever at a wedding and you hear that statement said, as I'm convinced it always should be said in a wedding ceremony, this is the basis of it. This is God's word that flows from God's design in marriage. What God has joined, let not man separate. And so then after he makes that statement in verse 6, when he's further challenged by the Pharisees in verse 7, Jesus responds that God has never relinquished his creational mandates. Instead, what Jesus clarifies is that he allowed for divorce, 
In other words, he permitted it in Deuteronomy 24 because of the hardness of people's hearts. And then in verse 9, Jesus repeats what he had said earlier in Matthew 5, verse 22, as he heard, with what is referred to as the exception clause. And so he says there in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so the point that we should see and that I'm trying to emphasize is that in all of this, Jesus is emphasizing that God's very clear, unchanging will since the beginning has always been that marriage was intended and designed by him as a lifelong faithful union of one man and one woman. Marriage is a divinely ordained, it is not a humanly invented institution. And therefore, divorce is ultimately completely at odds with God's creational purpose. Except, there's an exception. And we need to wrestle with and, and, and deal with this exception clause, as it's been called, that Jesus says, both in Matthew 5, verse 32, as well as here in Matthew 19, verse 9. So, everybody with me so far? Everybody with me? Okay. So let's interact about this exception clause, letter B on your notes. Uh, the exception clause and the meaning of porneia, which is the Greek word that is translated there both in Matthew 5 as well as in uh, Matthew 19. Uh, in the New King James Version, it's translated as sexual immorality. Uh, in the uh, ESV, as we're reading from, also sexual immorality. In the New American Standard, it's translated as um, unchastity. And in the NIV, it's translated as marital unfaithfulness. But it's, it, it's the key word that this uh, question, and in many ways this debate, hangs upon. And so there is a lot of debate about this exception clause, which is only stated by Jesus in these two places, Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. It does not appear in the parallel text in Mark chapter 10, and also, as I highlighted earlier, it does not appear with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. Now, there are some scholars and pastors who argue that in view of the Mark and the Luke texts where Jesus says what he says, either Matthew or someone else after Matthew has added this exception to the text in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And by arguing that, they're ultimately implying that Jesus himself never actually stated this exception. Well, there's absolutely no historical or linguistic or textual evidence to support that claim. And even if that exception clause was added by someone other than Matthew, uh, it yet is present in the earliest and most reliable New Testament manuscripts that we have. So that is to say, even if it was added, which I don't believe it was, and there's no evidence that it was, by, that it was added by somebody other than Matthew at a later time, it nonetheless is still a part of God's inerrant, authoritative word, an inspired word. So in light of that, if we accept, as I believe we should, that the exception clause is God's authoritative word and that it's to be understood and applied in connection with all of God's word, 
then the next matter of concern is the specific meaning of this Greek term porneia, which is translated sexual immorality in the ESV. And obviously you can see this is where uh, the word pornography comes from, this term that is translated as sexual immorality. And how one understands this term has great significance then for how one understands what Jesus is both allowing and what he's also prohibiting in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And you might guess uh, that there is no universal agreement among faithful Bible-believing Christians as to the exact meaning of porneia. There's a general regard and recognition for what it means, but some of the specificities that have a lot of significance regarding what Jesus is allowing and prohibiting uh, are very, very debated. And there are differing views. There's primarily three of them that we'll look at about what Jesus is allowing and prohibiting with this exception clause. And each view, I might mention, also has many nuances and variations. And so uh, what we're going to look at in looking at these, these are very broad, generalized summaries. And I might mention that in Kostenberger and Jones's book, uh, they have a pretty detailed appendix that goes into a lot more detail about the nuances and complexities of these various views. And I would leave that to yourself. We're not going to get into all of the weeds of all of it for now. Uh, but just try to give these broad summaries of these views. So, everybody still with me? All right, here's view number one, uh, that what Jesus is affirming is that both divorce and remarriage are allowed in certain instances. This is the first view. And this view understands porneia uh, to be a reference to adultery uh, and, or any form of sexual immorality and it affirms the biblical legitimacy of divorce and remarriage for the innocent party of a spouse's adultery or sexual immorality. Now, by the way, as a note, in view of Jesus' teaching back in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, remember the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's, uh, Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about heart righteousness and there in verses 27 and 28, he's identifying that the sin of adultery is primarily a matter of lust in a person's heart. Understanding that, then porneia, as it is used here in Matthew 19, would include any sexual immorality in thought or action, including the use of pornography. Now, this is the majority view among Bible-believing Christians today that, with exceptions, Jesus does make allowance for divorce and remarriage in certain instances where there has been uh, adultery or some form of sexual immorality. It's the majority view among Bible-believing Christians. I will tell you that's the view that I hold to presently. It was the view of the reformer Erasmus. He uh, articulated and promoted uh, this position. It's also found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's been championed by uh, more modern-day scholars and pastors such as John Murray is a name you might be familiar with, D.A. Carson, John MacArthur, and John Stott, just to name a few. Uh, so that is uh, the majority view that divorce and remarriage are both allowed in certain instances. The second view 
is that divorce is allowed, but no remarriage. Divorce is allowed, but no remarriage. <clears throat> and this view understands pornea to be a reference to some type of sexual sin, such as adultery, yet holds that while Jesus allows for divorce on account of sexual sin, he did not permit remarriage. Now, this was uh, the nearly unanimous view of the church from the 1st to the 16th century, to the time of the Reformation. And this view argues that in Jesus' exception clause in Matthew 19, pornea is followed by the phrase, and marries another. And so, therefore, it's argued that it's only when remarriage takes place following a divorce, um, after divorce due to pornea, it's only when the remarriage takes place that sin actually occurs. Now, this is more of a minority view today. Uh, some of the scholars who hold to this view, you may or may not know of some of these names, Gordon Winham and uh, Robert Gundry and Warren Car Carter are a few who have uh, written on this. And that leads to the third view uh, that neither divorce nor remarriage are allowed in any circumstance, in any circumstance. And this view understands pornea to be referring to some type of sexual sin. Uh, it could be premarital sex, incest, Jew or Gentile, mixed marriage, or a combo of all of these. Uh, but this argues that, that in Jesus' time, any aspect of those types of sexual sin would have made marriage unlawful under, Jesus, under Jewish civil law in Jesus' day. And so the argument is that Matthew 5.32 and uh, Matthew 19.9 don't allow for divorce or remarriage in our modern context, in our modern context. And modern-day advocates of this view include uh, scholars and pastors such as F.F. F. Bruce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, John Piper, Charles Ryrie, among others. Now, again, these are very broad, uh, very generalized summaries of those views. There are a lot of nuances and uh, complexities in how those are put forth, but those are the essence of them. And again, in my own conviction, my own understanding, at this point in time, I very much hold to that first view. Uh, that divorce is contrary, ultimately, to God's good creational design, and yet there is allowance for divorce and remarriage in certain instances. And I might also just mention the caveat. They, they're, they're always complex. They're always difficult. No two situations are identical, and they require much prayer, wisdom, humility, and care in walking through them. But... Having said all of that, let me, let me then just give a few uh, essential perspectives, and, and then we'll pause uh, for any interaction, a few essential perspectives. And again, recognizing that there are nuances, nuances and variations to all these views, uh, meaning that faithful, Bible-believing Christians can and often do have differing convictions. And so we can at least affirm uh, these three perspectives. There's probably others that we could identify as well. But the first one is this, uh, regarding pornea and the error of no-fault divorce and remarriage. And I've sort of already spoken about this, but while the specific meaning of pornea may be debated, it's clear that the general meaning involves sexual sin. Any sexual sin 
that is contrary to the one flesh union that God ordained between a husband and a wife in marriage. And so in both Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, porneia, sexual sin, is the only exception in which Jesus allows for divorce. And this means there is no biblical support at all for this horrendous, destructive, and sadly prolific practice of no-fault divorce. That is a worldly, ultimately demonic uh, view and practice. Now, as we're going to see shortly from God through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, God also allows for divorce and remarriage when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But the biblical, the Bible categorically rejects the philosophies and practice of no-fault divorce. So wherever else you may land, that much should at least be affirmed. And then related to that is this next point of, 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 a, of another essential perspective, the sacredness of marriage and the tragedy of divorce. I've already mentioned this, but God's design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, it has not changed. It has not changed. He ordained marriage to be a lifelong faithful union of one man and one woman. And thus, while I do believe that there are times that divorce is biblically allowable, it must yet be understood as a tragic fracture, as a tragic rupture of God's good design. And another way of saying this is that while I believe that God and his word allows for divorce or permits divorce in certain instances, he never requires it. He never mandates it. And I think that's an important point to affirm, the sacredness of marriage, the tragedy of divorce. And then another point for us to hold to, and and, and I'll mention this again before we're done as well, is our need to have charitable convictions that are based fully and only on Scripture. Now, there's a lot packed into that statement, but to have charitable, humble convictions Uh, It's a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul describes the nature of Christ-exalting, Christ-empowered love. And that love needs to be evident even as we may land in different places regarding our convictions in these matters of divorce and remarriage. And certainly all of us need to be aware of uh, holding convictions and opinions that might be based more on personal experience or on our own emotions or on what seems popular and accepted in the world. We need to be careful and and can lovingly encourage one another to to make sure our convictions are based only and fully on God's word, uh, but we nonetheless need to be humble and Christ-like and charitable. And what love and what humility and what mercy and grace and patience and acceptance Uh, that we need to have with one another as believers. And again, not only regarding differing convictions that we may have and do have, uh, but also regarding differing experiences. Every single one of us has a history, (laughs) and sin is a part of that history in all kinds of different ways, maybe to higher, lower degrees, but we're all impacted by it, both directly and indirectly. And yet this goes back to what I shared at the very beginning, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so we need to be gracious and merciful with one another, not only regarding differing convictions, but also differing experiences. 
that we each bring and that we've each had. So with all of that, that sets us up to then uh, get into what Paul has to say, God through Paul, uh, in a couple of passages in, first of all, uh, Romans and then 1 Corinthians. But before we get to that, any, any thoughts, questions? Yes, Rhonda. Yeah, they were wicked, hypocritical, demonic scoundrels. And uh, not beyond the ability of God to save, as he, as he did with some um, at all. But um, that was just the outworking. There, there was a great um, disdaining of women. And, and we know, sadly, that still takes place not only in many cultures, but can take place among anyone who's, who's outside of Christ. Uh, not regarding them as, as, as co-equals and being made in God's image, um, recognizing distinct roles and responsibilities, and yet, but yeah, tragically, they were very uh, arrogant and hypocritical in all of that. Yeah, Eric. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the case-by-case -case basis uh, cord. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that kind of thing does illustrate that there would be a lot of other things to consider, to look at, to examine. Um, so I'd, I'd be hesitant to, to say without having a full, full picture. I, I, I guess I would say there may be some instances in which it may be. There may be other factors that would cause that not to be. But yeah, and that, that illustrates obviously just the probably endless what-ifs, you know, of, but yeah. But, and it's not an illegitimate question, but it does get into the complexity, yeah. Christy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And we'll touch on that a little bit with things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, and, and I think there, it also touches on matters related to a difference between um, legitimate uh, even in many instances, perhaps morally required separation versus full-on divorce. Um, and that, that also becomes a complex thing. And, and, and I'll only say now, I think there's a lot that can fit into an understanding of abandonment, as Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a delicate thing, but tragically we know and understand it's a real thing. And I think in some instances, when there is um, unrepentant abuse, 
in the many different forms that can take. My own perspective generally is that that can be evidence of an abandonment of the marriage uh, covenant in, in many ways. If so, yeah. Eric. Okay. Promise the last question. Um, <laughs> so there's a, more, there's a divorced couple. Um, somebody remarries. Maybe they, they come to Christ later. They're part of the church. There was an act of adultery, according to what we've just read, because mm -hmm. you were divorced and now you're remarried. Mm -hmm. We don't treat that as an ongoing case of adultery. Um, so how do, how do, what should we, how should we evaluate? Was it a one-time act of adultery and then now it's, you know, forgiven because you're in Christ? Or how, how do we see that? Yeah. Uh, again, acknowledging complexities. Fundamentally, yes, it's, it's sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And that's one of the points I make on the back, you know, in these, these closing perspectives is that um, sin was committed and it was real sin and it needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be confessed and and yet, it needs to be understood, Christ forgives, Christ cleanses, and, 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 and then you just keep moving forward in God's grace. So it's not minimizing it, but it's also acknowledging that it's not unforgivable within the blood of Christ and the provision of Christ. So, yeah. oh my, the hands are going up. Tim. That real quick, agreeing, and also saying, it's still a, that new marriage is a real marriage. Yes. So it's not like, like if, if, if a couple is like, is like living together, cohabiting, and they come to Christ, and you say, okay, repentance is going to look like, stop doing this. But that's not, that's not what repentance would look like in this case. Right. Because it is a one flesh union. Right. right. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Uh, Nathan. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Good. You were tracking along, so. Good. Well, let's, let's move on, and uh, I'm going to have to push through this a little bit quickly, I think, but um, as always, there's uh, our emails on the back, both me and Gary and Tim, all three of us. If you've got questions, um, feel free to, to, to follow up with us too, and we'll, we'll do what we can in interacting a bit about these matters. But Paul's teaching on divorce and remarriage. Uh, first of all, would somebody read um, Romans 7, 1 to 4 when I call on you? Um, Paul, why don't you do that? You got that one, Paul? Are you good? Okay, I'll, I'll have you do that in just a moment. Then somebody else to read um, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. John, got that. Somebody else to read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. All right, Matt. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. So have somebody read that. All right, Tim, thank you. So we'll come to these momentarily. So first of all, Romans 7, 1 to 4 uh, just going to hit this very briefly because what Paul addresses here is illustrative. He's, he's drawing upon divorce and remarriage in an illustrative way. And in Romans 6, he's been explaining how Christians, believers, are no longer slaves to sin or to the law because they've died to these in Christ. And so believers are now slaves to God in Christ and free to walk in his righteousness and free to pursue sanctification in that sense. So then he says what he does here in chapter 7, verse 1 to 4, Paul. Paul, if you'd read Paul. For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. 
So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Okay, thank you. I think you're reading from the New American Standard, right? Yep. Excellent. So again, Paul's uh, referencing divorce and remarriage in an illustrative way, and his point is clear. Uh, just as the death of a spouse frees one from the bonds of marriage, so the death of Christ frees believers from the bonds of sin. That's the point that he's making. Uh, Paul's only using marriage as an analogy here, and he's not giving an exhausted discourse about divorce and remarriage, but it's at least worth noting that he's referencing this. Now, the only other place in the entire New Testament with instructions about divorce and remarriage is in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's turn to that passage now uh, with the things that Paul addresses, 1 Corinthians 7. And in this passage, uh, Paul is responding to matters that the Corinthian church had written to him about. He makes reference to that in verse 1 of chapter 7. And then in verses 10 and 11, he draws on Jesus' teaching, and here's what he says, verses 10 and 11. If, uh, who's going to read that? John. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, that's verses 10 and 11. Now, like Jesus' statements in Matthew 10, or I'm sorry, in Matthew, uh, Mark 10, and in Luke 16, Paul's words here are absolute. He doesn't mention any exception here. Husbands and wives should not divorce each other, yet if they do, they must not remarry. Now, on the surface, this would seem to support the no divorce, no remarriage view uh, that we looked at briefly earlier. However, with what Paul goes on to say in verses 12 to 16, it sort of complicates things because he addresses the issue of an unbelieving spouse uh, leaving or divorcing a believing spouse. And so similar to the exception clause that we saw and heard from Jesus in Matthew 5 uh, and Matthew 19, this has often been referred to as the abandonment clause, the abandonment or the desertion clause. And by the way, when Paul says in verse 10, he says to the married, I give this charge, he says, not I but the Lord. Um, Paul is speaking God's authoritative word, but he's simply saying that the Lord Jesus had previously addressed these matters. Uh, he would have been familiar with what Jesus had said. Uh, but then as he goes on and says um, with what he says in verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, um, He's not affirming that this is his word and not God's word. He's simply saying this, what he's about to say, is new revelation. The Lord Jesus had not previously addressed what he's now addressing. Does that make sense? So it's still God's authoritative word through Paul. He's just acknowledging that, uh, that, that Jesus had not spoken about this kind of situation that he's now addressing. So uh, who's got verses 12 through 16? Yes, Matt. 
to the rest I say, I am not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, now let me mention just a couple of things. Um, first of all, Paul is in no way sanctioning the idea of a believer knowingly marrying an unbeliever. And that's very clear because of what he says later down in verse 39 that, uh, uh, that, that if her husband, if a woman's husband dies, she free to be, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Most likely, Paul is dealing with a situation with people who were both unbelievers when they got married and then one of them became a believer. So most likely that's the kind of situation which would have been pretty frequent because there were a lot of new believers happening uh, as the gospel was being proclaimed. So keep that in mind. And obviously also we can't get into all of the details of, of what Paul is explaining here and what he's saying, but the essence of what he is saying is that a mixed or we could call it an unequally yoked marriage where one spouse is a believer and the other is not He's ultimately arguing that that is preferable to divorce because it provides a Christian environment and witness for both the unbelieving spouse and any children that the couple may have. So he's sort of taking that angle. In other words, the believing spouse should, should ultimately see this as, a, as an evangelism opportunity in terms of their spouse and if they have children who are unbelievers. But then he goes on to say, if the unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce, he says the believing spouse is not to hold him or her back because God's desire is for peace. And there's sort of an implication that only God knows whether the unbelieving spouse will ever be saved. So he's allowing, he's giving an exception that if the unbelieving spouse seeks divorce, seeks to desert, to abandon the marriage, then the believing spouse is to, to let them go in that sense. But then, of course, the question remains. If divorce happens because the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, is the believing spouse free to remarry? And that's obviously a very pertinent, very relevant question. And central to that question is what Paul says in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, as it's translated in the ESV, in the New American Standard, the New King James, and the NIV, it, it's translated as bondage or bound. Uh, in other words, the believing spouse is not bound. Now, a little bit later in verse 39, uh, Paul uses a similar but not identical word uh, that is also usually translated bound. Who's got verse 39 uh, to read that, Tim? A wife, is not, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, 
And that's following, of course, other instructions he's giving, but it gives us some sense of most likely what Paul is referring to when he talks about being bound or being enslaved. He means married. So again, the question then, if divorce has happened because the unbelieving spouse has left the believing spouse, can the believing spouse get remarried? Well, surprise, 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 there's debate about that as well. And so let's look at these uh, two views very quickly. And again, there are nuances, uh, complexities to these arguments, but here's what they are. Uh, the first view is basically, yes, the believing spouse is free to remarry. Uh, the majority of Christian Bible-believing scholars would hold to the, uh, the fact that both divorce and remarriage are allowed in some instances, um, which is, lines up with the previous matter of the exception clause in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Uh, and believe that 1 Corinthians 7 allows for the believing spouse to remarry if their unbelieving spouse has divorced them. And again, that is my present view as well. Uh, the view is that the unbelieving spouse who has abandoned the marriage and thus dissolving the marriage bonds has in a sense become dead to the believing spouse. And thus the believing spouse is free to remarry they're not required by God to remarry, but remarriage is allowable with the caveat that Paul makes in verse 39 in the Lord. And without going into all the complexities and details, I believe there is somewhat of a reasonable argument and perspective when there are issues of unrepentant abuse as to the question that Christie Christy asked earlier. Uh, where in many ways that, that, that is sort of seen as, a, as an abandonment of the marriage covenant. Uh, in other words, there can perhaps be sort of an active abandonment and also perhaps a passive abandonment. I say that very guardedly because, there, again, there's a lot of issues and complexities, uh, but I do believe there is uh, some recognition of that. Second view, of course, is that no, the believing spouse is not free to remarry. Uh, Christian Bible-believing scholars who hold to the divorce but no remarriage or to the no divorce and no remarriage views discussed above in connection with the exception clause uh, generally believe that though the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, that this does not ultimately dissolve the bonds of marriage and thus the believing spouse is not free to remarry unless the unbelieving spouse eventually dies. And the general sense of this argument is that because of what Paul says in verses 10 and 11 in prohibiting remarriage, they argue that the only context in which a spouse can remarry is if the other spouse has died. And in this view, uh, that to which the abandoned party is not bound is what they would describe as the relational obligation uh, to contest or to argue with the unbelieving spouse desire to depart. And in my own understanding at this point, that seems to be stretching a bit the meaning of bound and enslaved in verse 15, especially as Paul circles back and, and uses a form of that term down in verse 39. Uh, but that nonetheless, again, in a broad sense, is that view. Well, once again, uh, recognizing that these are debatable and uh, complex issues, some key perspectives to have. Let me just touch on these. Uh, first of all, a recognition that, well, let me just say, there's no silver bullet that just fully resolves every argument. Um, these are complex issues. And again, these, 
both Matthew 5, Matthew 19, uh, the parallel passage in Mark 10, Luke 16, Paul's analogy in Romans 7, and what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Those are the only places in the New Testament where divorce and remarriage is directly addressed. So, uh, recognizing it all. First of all, 1 Corinthians 7.15 allows for divorce resulting from an unbelieving spouse who abandons marriage. That is very clear. There's an allowance for that. But then debates concern that to which the believing spouse is then bound or not bound to what they're enslaved or not enslaved. Are they free to remarry or to not remarry? And so uh, that's just an acknowledgement of that. Uh, next bullet there, with divorce by abandonment from an unbelieving spouse, reconciliation should still be sought. And that just reflects the creational ideal of God's design in marriage. Um, and however things go, remarriage or not, there should be uh, a recognition that, that reconciliation would ultimately be desired. And yet sometimes, sadly, it just doesn't happen. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 12 and general commandments to believers, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We can only do our part, and the other people we're not responsible for. And then once again, I would say have charitable convictions based fully and only on Scripture. Uh, once again, be careful that convictions, perspectives are not based on personal experience, emotions, or uh, pragmatic and relational desires. Now, with having said all of that, let me just mention these concluding principles. I'll only touch on these, and, and we might have just a moment for, for a question. Uh, but let me just touch on these. Uh, I've alluded to this earlier. Letter A, I'm on the back page of your notes. Uh, Though serious and producing life-altering effects, sinful divorce and remarriage are not unpardonable sins. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And in no way minimizing sin, either in justifying it, excusing it, blaming others for it or anything, we need to own our sin if we've been guilty of sin in any way. Yet, in the wise, good, loving, powerful, overwhelming, incomprehensible love and mercy and grace of God, even our sin falls into the promise of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament who was just heinously um, mistreated, hated by his brothers and all kinds of other injustices that he experienced. And yet, many, many years later, when his brothers finally are brought before him and he's in a position of power that he could destroy him, what does he say to them? You intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the mystery. That's the hope of the gospel, that God causes his grace to abound even where sin had abounded. And so, as heinous and as tragic as divorce and, and sinful remarriage can be, it's not unforgivable by God. It's not unpardonable. And that means we as believers need to have that same disposition as well toward one another. And so that's letter B. All believers should labor to develop charitable, biblically informed perspectives about divorce and remarriage. I've already touched on that. Uh, letter C, physical separation in marriage is different than divorce and at times such separation is not only permitted but morally required, believe. If there is endangerment, either of a spouse or of children, there are, uh, there, there's moral issues and there's legal issues even with regard to that. 
And again, these things are hard, they're complex, and they're difficult. But physical separation is different than divorce. Letter D, a person should repent from past sins regarding divorce and remarriage without necessarily changing his or her present situation. And this relates sort of to your question, Eric, and Tim, to the comment that you made with regard to that. Um, if you're presently in a marriage that perhaps was entered into sinfully, uh, maybe there was divorce in the past, whatever may have played into it, yes, your sin needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be dealt with before the Lord and come under the cleansing, forgiving blood of Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to change your circumstances. And uh, that matter is, is, is clear. That leads to letter E, all believers should seek the counsel and care of their pastor elders in navigating the complex issues of divorce and remarriage. Uh, God has designed the church and, and really should say not only the pastor elders in an overseeing, uh, caring, loving, uh, hopefully biblically informed wise way, but also the ministry of the whole body. Um, God never intended anybody to operate as a lone ranger either in marriage or out of marriage. We're, we're called to be the body of Christ, and we need the care and the ministry of the whole body, and certainly the involvement, especially in these complex, difficult matters of divorce and remarriage. Uh, we need the whole body. And that centrality of the local church is, is very much championed clearly in God's word. It's affirmed by Jim Neusheiser in his book, Neuheiser in his book, as it is also in the, the main book we're going through. So with all of that, I am going to bail <laughs> on any questions because we're just a few minutes over our time. We need to dismiss. I fully recognize that these are um, uh, difficult, complex, very personal issues for, for most of us in some form or another, either directly or indirectly. Would be happy to interact more about it um, anytime. Call us, email us, talk to us. Um, we would love to do that. But let me close us in prayer for now. Lord, may you accomplish your purposes through your word, and may all of our lives be guided by the fullness of your grace and truth in Christ, uh, both now and in the days ahead, not only in matters related to divorce and remarriage, uh, but in all of life. May your purposes be uh, fulfilled in each one of us, and thank you for the time you've given us to share. In Christ's name, amen and amen.